J.T. Crowley is Talking Books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. They'll give you their take on the writing process and how to create the secret sauce of page-turning deliciousness. Let's get into that magical mixture of the art and science of creativity. Here's J.T. Crowley, author of The Smart Kids and your podcast host. Hello, I'm J.T. Crowley, and today on the show, I'm excited to welcome Rob G. Rothwell from Vancouver in Canada. His book, 33 Years, The Unfiltered Memoir of a Cop, is an insight to behind the scenes of the life of a cop working the streets of Vancouver, one of the most cosmopolitan cities in Canada. Rob was born and raised in Vancouver and was the fourth out of five children to what he calls the Rothwell brood. He saw himself as a shy, unassuming child in stark contrast to some of his elder brothers who had a more brazen approach to life. But nevertheless, he always knew that deep within his chemistry makeup, he had a fair degree of confidence. All he had to do was unearth that confidence to become a cop on the streets of Vancouver. Rob enjoys cycling, skiing and messing about on the waters around Vancouver and now writing. The title of this book is pretty self-explanatory for it is the unfiltered and believe me everybody, unfiltered at times, very unfiltered, memories of Rob's 33 years career in the Vancouver Police Department. There are 54 topical memoirs in this revealing book of his. Some of the stories have a serious side to them. Some have a satirical viewpoint to them. Others will make you laugh, while others will make you stop and think. Hmm. So let's ask Rob to join me so that we can get to the heart of this very, very intriguing book, everybody. Rob, come and join me. Hello, John. It is wonderful to join you and your viewers and listeners today. Oh, I think they're going to be delighted, Rob, uh, with some of the stories that we're going to telling them. Uh, I think some of them might be going, really? Oh. <laughs> well, I'm excited to tell them. Wait for some of this lot, everybody. <laughs> Rob, this book of yours has 54 stories, each with their own dedicated chapter. These stories capture the events, um, or should I say the most pivotal points in your 33-year career as a cop on the streets of Vancouver. Some of the stories I've said are harrowing, some are heartwarming with a sensitive touch to them, and others are just hardcore every day for a Canadian cop. You retired from the Vancouver Police Department in 2012. Why now did you choose to publish this book? But more importantly, out of all the stories you could have told, why these 54? Well, John, you know, after I retired, I had these stories rolling around in my mind, along with many, many others. And I thought... You know, so many members of the public have an interest in these stories. Whenever I would tell a story, the feedback I got was really quite sensational from individuals that really appreciated a peek into the world of policing because it is a very unique world and there's no sort of well-defined uh, explanation of policing. 
And so I thought, I need to put this on paper. I need to get this out there for the benefit of people that, you know, have a curiosity about what goes on in policing. So I didn't write it for other police officers. I wrote it for the average person to, in order to open the door uh, to policing for them. And, and the stories are just a collection of stories that are really representative of my career. So as you pointed out, some are comical, some are tragic, some are frightening, but they are really representative of all of those events that and a police officer experiences over the course of a career. And I didn't want to structure these stories in any sort of, you know, logical way, such as along a timeline or based on particular assignments at the time. I wanted the reader to be surprised every time they turned the page into a new story, because in a policing, in the policing world, you really don't know what's coming next. And so uh, I wanted the book to represent that or, or, or to at least convey that sense, uh, because no two days for a police officer are the same. And uh, and I also wanted the book to um, to provide the officer's point of view from that of a street constable to an undercover detective to uh, a manager and even a police executive administrator. And so the stories do cover my entire career, and I think that they are uh, very representative of a typical police officer's career in a large city like Vancouver. Let's open the pages to this cleverly composed book of yours. Now, everybody, we're not going to go through every single 54 episode because <laughs> we'll be here all day and night, believe you me. So we'll just pick a few of them. Um what I would like to do is, you know, for the idea of this podcast is just do 10 of them, Rob, so that people get a flavor, because that's the whole idea, is to give people a flavor of what you and this book of yours are about. So I want to go to, um, as I simply say, to get the books out, I want to go to chapter seven, the first chapter that we both agree to talk about in this book. So as I said, there are 54 chapters in the book, everybody. Each chapter is about an event that took part in Rob's life as a career in the Vancouver Police Department. So let's go to chapter seven. And this one you've headed up as mental illness, lessons learned. Now, I think you chose this chapter simply for the underlying message here. And that is mentally ill individuals are capable of remembering how they have been treated, not only by the Vancouver police, but police in general and other institutions, especially uh, following their psychotic episodes. What I like about this story is the guy who clearly had a history of mental illness and you had arrested who you had arrested a few nights ago. He reappears a few days later, and in a kind voice, he apologised for his behaviour the other night due to his Tourette's episode. And it's the way he apologised to you for how you treated him. You treated him with respect. This is why you put this story in, because you want to get the message across to people is... It doesn't matter who you are facing, you have to treat with respect. That's why this story is in, isn't it? 
John, you summed it up very well. Um, so this young man was in a record store, or you know, when 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 we had record stores where you bought a DVD and uh, and other you know musical devices, and um, so it was a popular store on a popular street in Vancouver uh, on a busy evening, and he was having an episode. He was having a very psychotic episode, and uh, he had torn off his underwear. He was screaming. He was violent. He was throwing things. He scared everybody out of the store. He was, um, he, he hadn't accosted anybody, but he definitely was uh, very intimidating. He was large. Uh, and uh, honestly, I, I sort of sum him up as the devil, you know, right there in the store, the way he was acting. There's a sense of evil about him. But I knew going in, uh, my partner and I, we knew that, uh, you know, there's something driving this, this anger. There's obviously a mental illness underlying this. And so many of the individuals that the police deal with are to some degree, you know, suffering from a mental illness or some kind of psychotic event. And it was clear that he was too. So the question really in our mind was, what are we going to do with him? And, you know, what is the best outcome for him, but also for uh, the safety of the public that, uh, you know, want to use the store and the staff and so forth? We knew he had to be removed. And it was either that he was going to go to jail for you know, threatening people and acting in a very violent manner, or he was mentally ill and going to go um, to a hospital. And so we kind of um, centered on the latter, and I had an ambulance attend. And the key here was to try and take this, this and this is a large, he's young, but he's a large man <clears throat> into custody without, you know, having to be violent, without harming him. And so, you know, we did our best to calm him and reassure him. And at one point, we were able to get control of him. We got him onto a stretcher. He had to be strapped down to the stretcher with these leather straps and removed to hospital and uh, and dealt with there as, uh, you know, somebody that was going through a psychotic episode. And that was the end of it for me. And, that, you know, this is one of the, the issues with policing that I try to highlight in the book is that you have these sort of big interventions in somebody's life and then it's over, they're gone, and you're on to the next uh, event, whatever it may be. So you don't really have time to contemplate or think about what might have happened to that individual or even follow up because they're just, it's call after call in a big city. But um, about three or four days later, I was standing on Bramble Street, which is sort of the main um, commercial strip in Vancouver. And uh, I was just standing in front of our community office there, kind of greeting people as they walked by. And I saw four young people walking toward me, two men and two women in their early 20s. And they looked like they, they looked like uh, really down to earth people that if my son was walking with them, I think I would think he would fit in perfectly with this small quartet. And when they got to me, one of the fellows broke off and he came up to me and I didn't even recognize him immediately. And he said, sir, or officer, I, I wish to apologize to you. I'm like, what for? <laughs> and he went on and I suddenly realized who he was. And uh, he said that he was exactly that, having uh, a psychotic episode due to what he called Tourette's. And um, but what he said was, I remember that you and your partner treated me with respect, that you treated me well, that, you know, I wasn't hurt. You didn't assault me or, you know, or engage in violence. And um and I was really blown away by the sincerity of his comments. And, and you know, he was close to tears, and frankly, so was I at that moment, because it was such a connection. And I felt this um, sort of deep well of emotion that, you know, I was so grateful that we had treated him well, even though it was difficult to do, because he was just so sinister at the time. You know, you you just think, I've got to, like, 
deal with this threat in a more forceful way, but we didn't. And uh, and it really drove home to me the fact that uh, irrespective of their um, sort of mental state, people do remember how they were treated. And it was you know clear to me that the lesson learned there is despite how he may be treating me and others due to his mental illness, it's critical that we treat him well. Absolutely. And that's the right approach. Um, I want to go to chapter 12. And again, this chapter, you know, which you head up 7 to 11, Showdown, comes across to me as a, a pivotal story for you. You say this chapter juxtaposes life-threatening danger with an innate desire to help an elderly woman. Hmm. When I look at this scenario, there you are. You're in a car park lot outside a 7-Eleven store when your sixth sense tells you something's not right about a parked car. You suspect the vehicle is the getaway transport for the guys in the store who you suspect are about to rob the place. You don't quite follow police procedure. You discover the vehicle has guns in it and that you're looking at a life-threatening situation here. And yet, wait for it, everybody, a little old lady, oblivious as to what is going on, demands your attention. Now, I know what's gone on here, but would you like to care to tell all the listeners what was this sure. story about the little old lady and the gun in the car? Yes. <laughs> I, will, I will preface this by saying that my mother instilled in me this uh, value or quality that you need to respect your elders. And if somebody, for example, it was drilled into me a million times because I used to take the bus when I was in high school to my part-time job there and back. And my mother said, if anybody gets on that bus older than you, you give them your seat, right? And so I routinely would stand up and offer my seat to you know a more senior person than me who was like 15 or 16 at the time. That'd be pretty much everyone. But anyway, that's, that's sort of the basis I was working from. And in this event, um, you know, there were two suspects that were in the store. And, you know, when our eyes met, I could just feel that they were there for they were not there, you know, to buy a candy bar and leave the store politely. Uh, and there was one individual in what I described as the getaway car that was backed in by the door of the store, which is a big old, you know, beater of a car. And so I went to check the driver of that car. It turned out he was on parole for robbery which is another good clue. <laughs> and yep. uh, I wanted to look in the trunk of the car and uh, he popped the trunk for me quite reluctantly. And as I was about to, you know, search the trunk of this car, this really sweet elderly woman was standing just on the sidewalk and she hailed to me and she was going, uh, officer, officer, officer. And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, may I ask you a question? <laughs> and I said, oh, and, and as she's asking that, I pick up, a shotgun out of the trunk of this car. It's a sawed off shotgun. So it's, you know, maybe 18 inches in length instead of 36. And I take it and I throw it as far as I can across the lot because I don't know if it's loaded. I don't know. I don't want it falling into any of the hands of the two people in the store or the driver. So I just throw this gun and then I pull my own weapon and I reposition uh, so that I'm holding the driver at gunpoint and trying to, you know, keep my eye on the people in the store. And right at that point, she realizes that this is sort of a life and death situation for me. <laughs> but she has a presence of mind to go, oh, officer, officer. And I look in her direction. She goes, it's okay. I can see that you're busy. <laughs> and she walks away. And 
it just stuck with me because I, I, you know, I felt this nagging need to address whatever her concern was, despite the fact that I was in, you know, this life-threatening situation, trying to call for additional resources come, and uh, and it's this um, struggle in, you know, my internal struggle between wanting to help this woman and wanting to preserve my life, you know, in terms of the threat that was facing me. And uh, mm. it, it, it still makes me chuckle to this day. And I just wonder, I would love, as I said in the book, like it would be more important for me at this point to be able to help that woman to find out what her concern was and talk to her rather than even what happened, what the outcome was of this case, which happened to be that the driver got two years in jail for having a restricted firearm. Um, but anyway, it, uh, I just thought it was an interesting just just proposing uh, position, you know, where you're trying to satisfy with a bit of a satirical quirky side where yeah, she's got the message in the end he's a little busy I'll move on yeah I love the way she characterized it I see you're a little busy okay. a little busy officer I'll move on yeah, I would... <laughs> I um, chapter 23 Rob yeah um, where and you put in here a little expletive uh, detectives I love this story because this short chapter made me laugh everybody it's about the Russian drug boys getting the better of you and your partner on duty that day. Now, your partner was also called Rob, and you referred to him as Rob One. And he lost his call that day. Now, just tell us, what happened at this little event? This one still makes me chuckle. I, I just could not believe what I heard uh, coming out of Rob's mouth. But anyway, to set the uh, stage here, um, there were some uh, very violent, organized crime Russian drug dealers that we were working on when I was in the drug squad. And we were working undercover, and I was working with my partner, Rob One, I refer to him. And, and, and the reason that he's Rob One is that in the drug squad, we use a special drug squad radio, and we usually... There will be six or eight of us out doing a surveillance, and we we want to talk to each other. We use our first names, uh, but because there are two Robs, we couldn't both be Rob. And so Rob One was a bit older than me, so he became Rob One. I became Rob Two. So if I were to say something on the radio, I'd go Rob Two, right? Uh, anyway, so that's just a way of differentiating between two Robs. But um, we were uh, part of a surveillance team that was surveilling these Russians and. Uh, we were mobile in vehicles, and the car we were driving was a very brash um, Camaro Z28, which is, you know, a high-performance sports car with noisy exhaust, wide wheels, and things like that. It was totally inappropriate for surveillance, but it was the only vehicle we had at the time. Um, and uh, so uh, we were among, uh, you know, four or five other cars conducting surveillance on the Russians. And they were very difficult to surveil because they engaged in counter surveillance techniques to try and pick off who were the police that, you know, may have been around them. And one of their tactics would be to drive onto an on-ramp that goes, say, onto a bridge that crosses a river. And halfway up the on-ramp, they would stop on the on-ramp, pull over, and then any police car or surveillance vehicle that was following them had to obviously drive past and cross the river before they could even come back. So, you know, they would pull the surveillance cars right out of the surveillance, and then they would turn around, drive the wrong way down the ramp to get back onto the road that they had exited off of. So, you know, you could just see the difficulty in following these folks. Anyway, um, turned out um, they went by us in the opposite direction. Somehow they thought we may have been the police, my partner and I, Rob, and they pulled a U-turn on this busy roadway, and they began to follow us. And I'm thinking, oh, this is not good. Anyway, so I thought, I've got to put a little space between us. Uh, and so there was a light coming up at an intersection, and I kind of waited till it was a late, very late green for us, which means it would be red for them. 
And I went through it, and of course they followed us. And now I, it's definitely, um, you know, I know they're following us now for sure. And so I thought I'm going to try and quickly go into a busy parking lot, bury the car, get out, and you know, find uh, get into the store and and uh, just disappear from these guys. Um, anyway, so I wheel into this parking lot and I pull into a parking spot, but they're driving very quickly, and they roar in and they park right beside us on the right hand side of us. And uh, and maybe they have a sense of humor, these characters, even though they're they're killers that are all and frankly, they're all dead now, these Russians. But they rolled down their window and they started taunting us uh, and they were saying comments like, hello, constables, gee, constables, are you lost? Do you need directions, constable? And my partner, I and we're both seething, seething and Rob won. We have power windows in this car. He puts down the power window. And he looks eye to eye to the Russians and he looks at them and he goes, we're Evan detectives because he was so insensitive at the point. And, and he didn't say he used the real word <laughs> because Rob was so incensed that they were, you know, not recognizing our rank of detective. They, you know, it was like disparaging to call us a constable uh, because, you know. You've we worked were... us out, but do you think you can call us by the right names? Thank you That's very exactly much. exactly You know, okay, fine, you got us, but if you got us, at least use our, you know, proper title. Give us some recognition for that. <laughs> and But the funny thing was, it just took them by surprise. We were like, so stunned that, you know, I'm sure they were expecting us to say, oh, I'm sorry, we're not, you know, like, who are you? Are you bothering us? So something that, you know, would, would sort of not anyway, everybody. Not Go and read the it. chapter, everybody. But, 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 you know, but they there was this pregnant pause where the Russians are looking at us like, did he really just say we're at the <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, oh, Rob. <laughs> anyway, our whole surveillance was blown. Absolutely. Uh, Rob, let's go to chapter 27. Uh, you know, Chief, this man called me a hun. We both love this one. Yeah. There's a bit of a lesson here, which is don't ever try to upstage a, a comedian because they'll, they'll always get you in the end. So um, without going into too much detail about who the Odd Squad is, but the Odd Squad is a terrible organization that uh, I was the president of at the particular time. It was composed of police officers and doing drug work, drug, you know, working with teenagers around drugs and so forth. Anyway, um, uh, the primary fundraiser for the Odd Squad was an annual gala, which was a large scale gala that uh, was really well attended by a lot of the who's who of Vancouver. And we always would have a keynote uh, guest or speaker. And on this particular year, our guest was Leslie Nielsen, who I'm sure uh, most people have seen the movie Airplane from 1980 or the Police Squad series. Um, and uh, Leslie Nielsen is a very funny comedic actor. He's a Canadian uh, and uh, and he's a lovely man. Unfortunately, he passed away a number of years ago. But we were having a small social in um, the police officer's mess with uh, Leslie Nielsen. And uh, so I was uh, actually um, identified to be the driver for Leslie Nielsen. So I was meeting him, shaking hands with him. And, and I said, um, listen, Leslie, if I happen to call you fun at some point during the day, it's because my wife's name is also Leslie and I may get confused. And at that point, without like a nanosecond wasted, he yells over the chief and, and he does it in his, um, Frank Drebin personality or persona that, cause that is his police story, uh, character. And he yells over, chief, chief, chief. 
this man just called me a hun. <laughs> in the social setting, this very sort of formal uh, social uh, get-together. And the chief looks over, and, and the chief just shakes his head and laughs, knowing that I just got totally upstaged by Canada's finest comedian. And uh, it was just a very funny event, and uh, and we had a great time after that, touring the city in this old antique police car that the uh, police department has, which... Um, I was driving, it's like a 1947 Mercury, and uh, it totally resembles the police cars of the era. And I took uh, um, Leslie Niels and his wife and another couple that they were traveling with on a tour of the city in that vehicle. And uh, it was hilarious because he's such a funny man. And he was sitting next to me in the front seat, and uh, the other couple were in the back. And uh, Leslie was just having a great time entertaining. And uh, we're in this car with a big steel dashboard, you know, and a police radio, things like that. And he's banging his hand on the dashboard, joking about how strong it is, but how deadly it is, you know, in the event of a collision, things like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're, I was sort of winding up the old-fashioned um, mechanical siren, you know, that starts with a very low tone, slowly sweeps up to a high tone. You know, every to, yeah, and, yeah. and you know, everybody in the public was looking in, and they see Frank Drebin or Leslie Nielsen in the car, and they're like, "Is this another episode of of a police story or something?" But uh, it was uh, a tremendously fun day. There you go, everyone. Nothing like the names dropping, is there? Yeah, and when you look at chapter 27, I once you've got a lot of photographs of you there throughout your years, you know, as a career in the police force. I have to say, there's one, everybody, you need to look at this one because this has made me laugh. The first photograph is Rob. He's got brown corduroy, brown corduroy trousers on, some yellow mustard uh, shirt with large collars, and what, one heck of a mullet for a hairstyle. <laughs> Lean against an old car. That's a classic photo, isn't it, Rob? <laughs> uh, that was my grade 12 photo. Uh, yes, uh, I think that was a graduation photo at the time from grade 12. And uh, I was trying to be as fashionable as possible in the 70s. I would have been taken in about 1975 or 6. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a classic 70s photo. It is. And and the vehicle was, was a vehicle that I actually owned. I had bought myself for $475. It was a 1959. You should know what it is. An English car. <laughs> well, come on. What is it? I love the photo. I also love the photo here. I'm looking at my iPad here, everybody. That's what I'm doing. There's got a photo of you on this is my mother and I on graduation day at the BC Police Academy in 1980. It's a great photo. Well, thank you. Yeah, I love that photo. I cherish that one. That was taken by my father. That's why he's not in the picture. But <laughs> And then you've got one more, everybody. It's, do you know this man? And that's a photo of you undercover. Now you need to go and look at that picture, everybody. One <laughs> scruffy person. I'm saying no more. Rob, let's move on to Chapter 30. Um, Cop Intuition. Net's a killer on your highlight list. Um, you know, it's coming to play here. It's about the widowed physician and a drunk in the posh part of Vancouver. What was going on there? It's a very sad story, but I, I want to include that story as a way of um, sort of exemplifying how police officers over years of patrol work and so forth, they kind of develop this sixth sense about, you know, what's right and what's wrong, or, you know, is there something wrong with this picture where other people may not see it? And uh, it's called kind of reading the street. Uh, and you become very, very attuned to what's going on in the street. And 
and on this particular occasion, um, there was an elderly uh, widowed um, physician who lived in the area, and he had just been brutally murdered through physical force in his home by a male suspect. Now, we did not have a description of the individual. This event was no more than 45 minutes old. I was in the area and, you know, just looking for something out of place. And I saw about a 40-year-old male that, in my mind, didn't fit the area. And, you know, and, and I'm not trying to stereotype people, but, he, you know, he was kind of a scruffy-looking individual. He appeared to be drunk or at least somewhat inebriated to me. And he was wandering, you know, within about three blocks of where this uh, tragic event had occurred. And I, and I thought, I've got to go further with this. I've got to investigate this further, but I've got to be careful to not um, violate this individual's rights or do anything that might jeopardize uh, the eventual investigation into this murder. And so I got out of my car in a very sort of um, dramatic, not dramatic way, but I wanted him to know that I was a police officer. I was in a marked police car and got out in uniform and I stopped him. And uh, it was pretty evident to me that he had been drinking heavily. Uh, as I put in the book, uh, drinking heavily to forget. It was, you know, had that sort of look to him. And um, I began talking to him and he he was either acting somewhat disoriented or he truly was disoriented due to his inebriation. But you know, he couldn't give an explanation of where he was going or why he was there. And, but, you know, I couldn't arrest him for murder because I had, there was no description whatsoever. I had no grounds to believe that he was involved in the murder. But I also knew I couldn't just let him walk away because he could be the murderer. So it's that cop intuition that's playing in my mind. And I'm wondering, how am I going to do this? How am I going to secure this person so that if he is a murderer, we can start the investigation and not jeopardize the case by, you know, arresting him without grounds? Well, the fact that he was inebriated and whether he was, you know, overemphasizing his uh, symptoms of intoxication or not, it did give me the grounds to arrest him uh, under what's called a state of intoxication in a public place, which isn't a criminal charge, but it does authorize the police to remove somebody from a public place that is unable to care for themselves due to drunkenness and essentially take them to the drunk tank. So they dry out in the drunk tank and then they get released, no criminal charge. So I, I arrested him for being drunk in a public place, and I had a police wagon uh, arrive to transport him to jail. And I had him handcuffed, and as I was putting him in the back of the wagon, I noticed on his hand, on his baby finger, they had this fairly elaborate gold ring on his finger, and that's the only jewelry he had on. And I thought, that ring just looks quite out of place as I was placing him in the wagon, and I made a note of it. Anyway, um, the long story short is that he did turn out, in fact, to be the murderer as the investigation progressed. The ring was the linchpin that tied him to the victim. Uh, and we did end up in court. And uh, during the trial, I was one of the first witnesses uh, for the police or for the Crown. And uh, the defense counsel, you know, accused me essentially of not providing him with his uh, charter rights, which is, you know, you have the right to instruct and retain counsel without delay, which means you can have a lawyer. And uh, and if I fail to do that, that could be a fatal flaw in the case. And I said I didn't have to do it because I didn't arrest him for a criminal charge. I arrested him for drunkenness, which is not a criminal offense. Therefore, there's no requirement to provide the charter of rights warning. Uh, which, you know, I could tell the lawyer would kind of like, okay, yeah, you're right about that. Anyway, the long story short is that um, he was eventually convicted of that homicide. But I just wanted to emphasize how, you know, cop intuition does kick in. And you may have difficulty um, articulating it, but you can feel in your bones that 
this is not right and you know this needs to be investigated further got instinct uh, yeah it has totally got instinct and, and they become very refined over years of police work now you put you said you wanted to put this chapter in uh chapter 34 response times matter tell us briefly why you wanted to put this chapter in um, so often people will see a police car racing down the street with its lights and siren on. And I've heard, you know, the, the snarky comments, oh, they must be late for coffee or they're trying to get off early or something. Right. And uh, and I just wanted to give uh, an example here. And I thought that these two cases, which are cases of uh, very severe uh, domestic violence, uh, they somewhat mirrored each other. They had vastly different outcomes. But in both cases, I think a rapid police response saved the life. And in case number one, um, it was uh, about four in the morning. My partner and I were winding down on a night shift. We joined another uh, partnership of officers. At, and I know this is classic at a donut shop, an all night donut shop. And we simply were just sort of winding down and viewing the evening's, uh, you know, uh, events. When this call came over our radio about a very vicious uh, domestic attack taking place, uh, the victim was calling. She was being chased uh, by her partner with a knife. And we were not too far away. So, you know, suddenly we went from being tired and sleeping and, you know, trying to have a donut to stay awake, to jumping in the car and racing at full speed with lights and sirens to this location, to the house, which is a, a nice house. Um, and um, this victim occupied the middle suite in this property, which was a three-level uh, triplex. Uh, as we were arriving, uh, the suspect heard us coming clearly, and uh, he wanted to avoid being arrested. Uh, he was extremely vicious and violent. He actually jumped through the living room window, smashing the window boat onto the veranda and then jumped off the veranda, you know, a drop of maybe 10 or 12 feet to the grass and started booking it running. And uh, so the two officers that we were having coffee with chased him and uh, fortunately they caught him. And my partner and I ran into the house and uh, the victim at this point, she uh, was sprawled uh, prone on her back on the living room floor, and she has sustained the most vicious wounds I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, in 33 years of policing, you see a lot of severe injuries. But uh, she was uh, an obese woman, and uh, interestingly, her obesity probably saved her life. But she was, uh, and uh, you know, I, I said in the book, I don't want to be gratuitous about this, but she was flayed open in many areas and stabbed and uh, jabbed and, uh, you know, it was really a horrible situation, and she was bleeding out. She would have died if we not had not got there and also not had our ambulance personnel attend as well. And, um, you know, we arrived first, my partner and I, and she had a young girl that lived in the suite as well with her that was about five years of age. And uh, so my partner was trying to address the wounds that were bleeding worse, and I was trying to keep her conscious, and I thought – you know, I'm going to talk to her about her daughter. And I said, oh, tell me about your daughter. What's your daughter's name? How old is she? You got to stay strong for your daughter. And 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 doing that, actually, it was remarkable because it really did give her the will to fight on, even though I'm sure that her blood pressure was dropping to zero. She was bleeding out. Um, and fortunately, I, you know, I kept um, sort of um, patting her clammy forehead because, you know, she mm. was sweating. Um, the paramedics arrived, they started an IV, which, you know, starts to return blood pressure a bit, the wounds, uh, you know, are being sealed off. And uh, she survived. And in fact, um, I received a message back from the hospital, which 
the doctor, which said, you know, her obesity had probably saved her life because the weapons that were used to attack her didn't penetrate vital organs uh, or arteries. And um, anyway, it was very, you know, traumatic event, but I'm so grateful that we got there as quickly as we did and stopped this maniac who had used five different knives to attack her, uh, including also the uh, blade from a hand mixer that, you know, mm. we found blood on that attacked her. So it was very terrible. Anyway, um, and it kind of mirrors another call that came in at uh, about 5.30 in the morning. And I, at that point, I was an inspector, so I was in management. I was what's called a duty officer on the road, which means that I managed all of the uh, on-road assets and resources for major events and calls and things like that. And this call came over that uh, in a basement suite, uh, there was a woman that was being attacked by her partner and that he was using a hammer and that there was also a child involved. And so, you know, similar sort of circumstance, I raced off to the call. There were no police officers or patrol officers immediately available at that point because they were tied up on other calls. And the person that actually covered me on this call was the chief because he happened to be driving into work at that time in the morning and he heard the call and he didn't hesitate to jump in there to cover me at this call. But I arrived first and it was a basement suite where this was occurring. And I ran up to listen at a window and I didn't hear anything, which was kind of unusual. You expect to hear all kinds of chaos in that basement suite. I ran to the back door of the suite, and just as I got there, I could hear somebody stomping their way to the back door coming out. I thought, oh, this is our bad guy coming out. So I drew my pistol, stepped off uh, the line of attack. It would be if you're, you know, in front of the door. And this guy came storming out of the door uh, because he knew the police were coming. He knew she had called the police. So I took him down at gunpoint. And fortunately, you know, this is terrifying for every police officer. When you have somebody at gunpoint and you're giving them very clear, direct commands, you want them to obey those commands. And he, I could tell in the suspect's mind, he he was thinking about it for a moment. What should he do? You know, should I run? Should I fight? Or should I comply? And there was that pause there where he thought about it and then he complied, which, you know, I was so grateful for that. And at that point, then the chief came running around the corner with his firearm. Anyway, so we arrested this guy. He had smashed up the, uh, you know, this basement suite with a hammer. He smashed the dishes, the kitchen table, things like that. And I'm sure there was no money to replace those items. He had not violently attacked um, his partner yet or the child. Uh, But again, I would credit our rapid police response to uh, to intervening in this event and stopping it because he heard, he, I'm sure he knew his wife, well, he knew his partner had pulled the police and that we would be there momentarily and he was booking it. But had we not got there, something more serious could have happened. So when you do see a police car, uh, you know, we're not going to coffee, everyone. <laughs> yeah. You know Chapter 37, Rob. Yes. Worlds collide on Olympic scale. Uh, you know, this is a very poignant story for you. Briefly tell us about it. Oh, my gosh. It is. I have to start. Uh, you know, you, you said at the uh, onset here that um, my brothers were more brazen than I, uh, my elder brothers. And my eldest brother, John, was definitely a firecracker uh, and and also somebody that always felt strongly about, you know, justice and uh, and fighting for the underdog. And uh, so, as you know, in 2010, Vancouver hosted the Winter Olympics, and there was a lot of protest uh, that surrounded the Winter Olympics. And the day before the Olympics were to kick off, there was a major march. It was called the Heart Attack March in Vancouver. 
And uh, it was a protest march. And for the, for the most part, that march was peaceful. People had a lot of things they wanted to say, uh, you know. But there was a group that was leading the march, which went under the banner of the Black Bloc. And uh, they were a bit of a global anti-capitalism uh, group. And uh, they were young kind of thug-like individuals that dressed in black, had black bandanas, carried uh, knapsacks full of rocks and uh, and uh, balloons filled with red paint to simulate blood. And when they got to um, the core of Vancouver's downtown at leading this march, all heck broke loose. It was complete chaos as they were smashing bank windows, uh, damaging property, you know, frightening all of the, the citizens that were on the streets at that time. And the police, who were uh, providing security for this march, they were tied up several blocks away, dealing with other skirmishes. So there was a bit of a delay in getting the police response up to where the black block were causing mayhem. Well, it just turned out that my brother John and his wife Diane happened to be downtown to take in some of the festivities for the Olympics and to go for lunch and so forth when all this broke out. So he was at ground zero, and so was press from around the world. So we had local television cameras, national and international press with cameras there capturing all of this rowdy sort of riotous activity going on. And the public, for the most part, cowering, you know, trying to stay out of the way of the Black Bloc, but not my brother, John, who decided that he was a one-man war against the Black Bloc, and he jumped in there, and he was shoving these people away from windows and from uh, the paper boxes that they were knocking over and, and challenging them and that sort of thing. And at the same time, John couldn't understand why all these other citizens weren't joining him. And he was literally trying to call the other citizens in and he was saying, come on, let's get them. Let's get them. Because, right? you know, and his mentality was, we, you know, if we gang up on this black block, we're going to win this. And where the heck are the cops? You know, well, they should be here dealing with this. Anyway, eventually the cops do get there and, you know, they take action and uh, and quell the riot, if you will. But uh, that night on the evening news. You know, video of my brother goes international of him, you know, pushing around the black block and trying to call other people in. So they, the press wanted to interview the chief at the time, who was uh, Jim Chu, about this sort of lethargic police response to the riot. And, uh, and you know, Jim was having, I would say, you know, a bit of difficulty answering the questions. And here we are, I'm watching the evening news that night on CBC, which is our version of BBC. And uh, they now have a split screen on TV. So on one side of the screen is Chief Constable Chu being asked these difficult probing questions about the delay in the police response while playing on a loop over and over beside him is my brother... <laughs> trying to quell the riot instead of the police and trying to, you know, get the citizens to come in and help. And this is playing over and over. And, and, and at this point in my career, I am a superintendent, which means I'm a member of the executive committee. And in the following morning, I will be in the chief's office along with the rest of the executive committee, uh, where we have a morning meeting and deal with all of the high profile events that have happened. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. My what am I going to say here? My brother, like, <laughs> I'm staging the chief on national television, and I've got to meet with the chief in the morning. And my dilemma mm. was, do I go in there and say, oh, you know that uh, bit on CBC? That was my brother that was trying to sort of resolve the riot because the police weren't getting in there soon enough? Or do I just keep my mouth closed? And uh, anyway, kept mouth closed. <laughs> well, no, I did the opposite. <laughs> I was proud of what he did. 
And I thought, I am going to stand up for him. And uh, and so I did. I, I proudly said, look, I, I got it. That was my brother. Um, Rob, I want to just quickly go over two more chapters. I'm very quickly here. And so chapter 40, Food Fights, you know, sort of. Again, this has a satirical touch to it. Um, now, I don't think I would, um, how shall I say this? I'd want my earlobe back after that event. <laughs> um, so briefly touch on that one. But then I also want you to briefly go on to Countering Terrorism, Chapter 51, because that's an interesting chapter, because here it starts off with the London tube bombings in 2005. It sure does. Just briefly, um, these two chapters, Rob. Okay, quickly, food bite. Um, two individuals, two young men in their early 20s or so, had a major fisticuff. They were battling each other, fighting, and they tumbled down the back stairs of this house they were fighting at, and uh, somebody in the home called the police. I arrived. By the time I arrived, the two combatants had stopped fighting, and in fact, they were friends again. So they were friends to start with. They had this horrendous fight, uh, but now, you know, they didn't want any police involvement, but one of the combatants was holding a gauze to his ear and it was very bloody. And I said, let me see your ear. And he pulled the gauze away and there was a crescent shaped bite out of his earlobe, you know, that removed most of his earlobe that looked like a bite out of a sandwich, honestly. And I, and I was stunned when I saw it and I said, what happened? He goes, he bit me. I go, well, you need to get some medical treatment for that, right? It was pretty clear. So I called an ambulance and sent this uh, combatant off to hospital. And because the two people were now friends, neither wanted any charges or anything to do with the, any criminal process, you know, I left the home. And about 15 minutes later, I received a call from the hospital and the nurse was asking, could you return and see if you can find that portion of ear the doctor would like to reattach it? I thought, well, certainly I'll do that. So I raced back to the home where the fight had occurred. And I rustled up the other combatant and I said, listen, the hospital would like to reattach that portion of the ear. Can you help me find it? And he looked straight at me in a very sheepish way and he goes, I swallowed it. And we won't go any further. Oh, <laughs> dear God. Yeah. And your counterterrorism one? Counterterrorism, you know, everybody knows that uh, uh, Islamist extremist terrorism became a global problem. And uh, events in London, and I believe it's 2005, uh, the London 2 bombing and the bus uh, surface bombing, yeah. really shattered it shattered everybody, uh, including here in Vancouver. We were going to be hosting the Winter Olympics five years hence of that bombing, and we were really concerned about the security of our Olympics. And uh, at the time, I was an inspector, and the chief uh, tasked me with creating a counterterrorism unit within the Vancouver Police Department to complement the work that the RCMP was doing, the RCMP, our national uh, police force, to complement their role in national security. And so in order to do that, um, I thought I need to talk to the experts around terrorism. So myself and uh, the sergeant that I would be placing in charge of the counterterrorism unit, we went on a best practices uh, journey and we went to the UK. Uh, we went to Scotland Yard and we spoke to detectives there. I was shocked at the number of um, terror related events that they would in be investigating on a regular basis. We gleaned a lot of information from there and programs that we copied. We then went north to Manchester uh, uh, because Manchester being a very working class uh, kind of city also had a lot of terrorist related threats, uh, met with them. 
And then we flew over the uh, Irish Sea to Belfast and met with the Belfast uh, Constabulatory. Uh, and of course, they have been dealing with the troubles between the Protestants and Catholics for how many years or centuries? I don't know. Decades. That's meaning what, mm -hmm. what we learned there. Uh, and I should, I, I've got one more quick tea story if I could squeeze that in. Go uh, on. Yard. Hmm? Go on. Okay, so here we are in Scotland, fabled Scotland Yard, which, you know, to me is the epitome of detective work and, uh, and uh, you know, a very regal organization. And we were amongst these very high caliber detectives and it was 3 p.m. And they asked, would, would we like a cup of tea? And I thought, well, uh, certainly I would. Of course, I'm going to have a cup of tea here in Scotland Yard. And it's going to be a very fancy, you know, uh, process uh, that we're going to go through. And I'm going to learn all about tea. Well, I expected the brown mm. Betty to come out from the cupboard and uh, some loose tea to go into the pod and all this sort of magical stuff to happen. But no, what happened was a about eight ounce styrofoam cup was placed on the counter. A twining tea bag was pulled out of the cupboard, which, you know, they pulled the paper off and dropped the tea bag into the cup, poured in about eight ounces of water and handed it to me. This, this was tea at Scotland Yard. I was so devastated. Well, at least there was a tea bag in it. Well, yes, I'm we won't go there. If you want to know what that little quip about, everybody, go and read the written introduction. Uh, Believe you me. Anyway, Rob, where can people get your books from and who would you like to see reading your books? I would like to see everybody reading my books, obviously. Uh, but anybody that has an interest in a policing career, I think you would find this book quite um quite an open door to policing and quite informative. And further to that, I think anybody that sits down and watches a cop show on TV will love this book. Uh, you know, and we all love cop shows. Cop shows, as you know, uh, just are perennial favorite among viewers. And I think that in many ways, uh, you know, this is the paper version of a fantastic cop show. And where can they get your books from? My book can be uh, obtained from almost any uh, bookstore, can order it. Um, but if you go to my website at uh, robgrothwell.com, there are all kinds of links there to Amazon, Chapters, Indigo, Kohl's, uh, and American sites as well. Uh, and so pick your site, order the book, and uh, I'm really confident that you will not be disappointed. The feedback I've been getting has been fantastic. Wonderful. My favourite um, American TV cop shows was Kojak, who love you, baby. <laughs> oh, I love Hill Street Blues. And, uh, Hill Street Blues and Cagney and Lacey. Oh, I know. I Anyone, everybody. I'm JT Crowling. Thanks for listening, watching, wherever you are in the world. So until next time, stay safe.